What I would suggest to you today is regardless of who stands up in front, my prayer is that the Lord would be the one that would speak to us. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to share with you this morning. Um, Let me begin by thanking you for allowing me last week to head up north. I was up in New Jersey, Delaware, and all of that area. And I had the privilege of going and picking up a friend of mine whom you'll have the chance to meet later this evening uh, or this afternoon as we have a gathering here at the church at about 4 o'clock. But it was also nice to be able to see some folks from the church where I previously had pastored as well, just to see them. Uh, Mike McConnell, who was a youth pastor here, we got to go to church with them last Sunday. And it was a real blessing. That baby is as big as the pictures look. Those of you who have seen the pictures on Facebook. I especially thank Pastor Wiggins not only for leading last week and taking care of the message, but allowing my son to be able to be up here with you this morning doing the harmonica stuff, and it is a blessing for me. Well, earlier this week, I had the opportunity, I was reading with some other individuals from 2 Peter chapter 2, and in it, we find a fascinating address from Peter. Uh, He says this, he says, "'So I will always remind you of these things.'" even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter knew that his life was short. We're not really sure exactly what the Lord told him. It doesn't appear that he gave him a specific time that his life was going to come to an end. But it does appear that Peter realizes his time is very, very short. As such, he is sharing this message, the message that is most important to him. If you look throughout the entire uh, First Peter and Second Peter, we see such a strong calling, pointing people to a specific thing. So reading this verse actually caused me to ask a few of the senior saints of this church to share with me what message they would give. I mean, the reality is that one day all of us will die. And I hate to tell you this, but since this service began this morning, you are closer to that time than you were then. Do you understand that time is passing? That means we are getting closer and closer to that point. So if you had one message to share with the people that you loved the most, what would it be? The response was unanimous. If they could share one message, it wouldn't be a message about being good people. It wouldn't be a message about loving each other. It wouldn't be a message about generosity or forgiving other people. Those are all really good things, but they are secondary to the message of Jesus Christ. Each one stated that if they had only one message to share, they would call people to be in a right relationship with God. By the way, all those other things that I just mentioned, when we are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, they happen anyways. Because what happens is we begin to love, we begin to forgive, we become generous, we begin to think about how can I bless the people around me. Well, as we look at their response, I want you to consider how that fits in with many of the heroes of our Bible. As they neared the end of their time, they also shared the things that were most important with them. 
Consider Joshua, who in his final address in Joshua chapter 24, challenged the people saying, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And he gives them multiple options. And he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He knew it was the end. He knew he wasn't going to have many opportunities to do this again. So he pointed them to the Lord. Or consider Jacob. Genesis tells the story of his family being forced into Egypt due to a great famine. And his son becoming the second most powerful individual in all of Egypt. Yet on his deathbed, he gives his sons the following instructions. He says, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan. Many theologians have suggested that Jacob's intent was not merely to have a specific burial place close to his family, but to get his sons to return to the place that God had already promised them, a place where his ancestors had experienced intimacy with God, where Abraham met with God, where uh, Jacob and Isaac both met with God. He was calling them back to the land of Canaan, by the way. That's the promised land, the exact same place that 450 years later they would find themselves. The only difference is they don't go right away. They stay in Egypt where they're nice and comfortable until that comfort becomes slavery. They'd have been better off if they would just went to be intimate with God when, God when their dad had told them to do so. Well, today I want also to point people to the love of Christ. My hope is that I'll be able to preach for more, many more decades. But no man knows the day nor the hour. Only the Father himself knows that time which he will come back. No one knows how long it will be before we die. So I want to get my money's worth now while I have this chance. I want each of you to know that a right relationship with God is the only thing that can satisfy us in this life. It's the only thing that can give us a hope for the life that is to come. Everything else that you do, I want you to be really good people. I want you to be people that are very generous. I want you to love people. I want you to forgive people. But if you do all of those things and you leave Jesus Christ out, this life will still be incomplete. Not only will this life be incomplete, but the life to come will be also. A great model of this is found in the story of David. And I know we're all somewhat familiar with his story. He's the one who experienced sexual sin with Bathsheba. And then in order to cover it up, he arranges for her husband to be killed. And we've talked about this story before, but today I want to look at it from a little bit different perspective. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 32. It's one of the Psalms of David. He has sinned and he has carried around the burden of sin for some time. A prophet named Nathan has shown up at his door and called him out for his sin. Basically said, you know what, you have done this and you deserve to be punished. You deserve to die. Of course, he's brokenhearted by the fact that he's called out on his sin. I know that my kids are always sorry after they've been caught. So, uh, uh, Dad, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. 
Of course, you just got caught. Now you're sorry. But I would suggest to you that for David, he probably felt that sorrow and regret and remorse much longer than just when Nathan shows up. How heavily the weight of shame and guilt must have been weighing upon him. Did he go to bed thinking to himself, I can't believe I did this. Can't believe I let this happen in my life. I am so ashamed. The odds are he probably did. Listen to his words in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. It goes on, it deals with some other aspects here, but I want to talk specifically just about these five and a half verses. First thing that we see here is a statement that says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. And when I think about this, my first thought begins to turn toward who does the forgiving. There are at least three categories where forgiveness is necessary. First of all, if we have wronged another, we are told in God's word that we are to make every effort to live at peace with those around us, which means that it's not just us going and saying, you know what, I'm sorry for what I did. Often what we do is we will offer our apology and we almost have this expectation, well, I apologized and therefore you have to forgive me. But often the wrong that we have done is so severe that simply saying sorry doesn't always create forgiveness right away. So what does it mean for us to truly live at peace with those around us? We do whatever it takes to make things right. Not just saying sorry and expecting something from someone else. We demonstrate our remorse by the actions that we choose and the attitudes that we display. Is it enough for your kids to say sorry and then go back and do the exact same thing the next day? What did their apology mean if they simply repeat the same action over and over and over again? It meant nothing. We are to seek that forgiveness, to seek that grace, to, to make every effort possible to make things right. Because we do want forgiveness from other people. You know what it's like to walk into a room and to know that somebody else has something against you? You walk in and you're almost ashamed to even show your face. You may not even feel like it's justified, but it's irrelevant. Because what happens is you walk in and there's this tension and this pressure and you almost would rather not even be there. So we seek that forgiveness from other people. The second group that we look for forgiveness from is from ourselves. And this can be really difficult for us to do. How can we expect anybody else to forgive us if we can't forgive ourselves? 
Often we carry around the weight of our sin over and over again. Other people, they'll say, you know what, I forgive you. I understand how it happened. But often that weight will continue to just wear us down. Because even though other people have forgiven, it's hard for us to forgive. Yet that's exactly what God calls us to do is to forgive. And that includes even ourselves. Here's the interesting part. And I'll use this to introduce the third party in forgiveness. Often what happens is we expect others to forgive, but we can't forgive ourselves. Then we even ask God to forgive us. And what, fi- what I find so intriguing is this. God offers forgiveness because his grace makes up for the difference for us. But often, even though God can forgive us, we cannot even forgive ourselves. There's something wrong with that. Because his standard is actually higher than ours. So if he can forgive, then why is it that we cannot forgive ourselves as well? The reality is, God granting us forgiveness is an incredible act of grace. And if God can offer that grace to us, then we ought to be able to offer that grace to ourselves as well. Second question that comes to my mind is this question of how can a man's sins be covered? In the Old Testament, we see a sacrificial system that really gives us a model, goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve committed sin. We see that through the shedding of blood, their sins are covered. In their case, they tried to use fig leaves to cover up their shameful nakedness. And God took the skin of an animal and he covered up their sin. That same model is in place thousands of years later simply because Jesus Christ is still allowing his blood to be shed. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on a cross and his blood is what washes away your sin and my sin. The same sacrificial system that was present in the Old Testament is still present today. And and the reality is you could try to offer a sacrifice and somehow think that that's going to be enough. I will tell you that it's not. It would have to be a perfect sacrifice to truly satisfy the God who will pass judgment. And only Jesus offered that perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And today, because of the shedding of his blood, our sins can be covered. There's another image that's used in the Old Testament. I love this image. We don't really talk about it all that much, although sometimes we will use a term that comes from it. The Israelites had a practice. They, they had a goat that they would take. Actually, there were two goats. One would be offered as a sacrifice. The other one would be known as the scapegoat. On this particular goat, they would symbolically place all the sins of the Israelites on this goat, and then they would send this goat out into the wilderness, never to be a part of the Israelite community again. Once a year, they would do this. And in this act, they were symbolically saying, the sins that existed over this past year, we are leaving them. They are gone from us. They no longer are part of this community. And in many ways, I believe that even within the church, that is something that is still necessary to cover up the sins of God's people. The reality is, sin does not belong among God's people. 
But far too often we have allowed sin to exist within the church. We have allowed things to take place that do not belong. And we've swept it under the carpet saying, well, we're just like everybody else. It's the culture that we live in. It's what you should expect in today's society. No. I told you that in First and Second Peter, there is a common thread that Peter is offering. He is continually calling the people back to holiness. And that is what needs to happen in the church today. As we look at the world around us, if everybody else should fall away, if everybody else should turn from the goodness of God, we need to stay faithful to him. And where we have allowed sin to exist, it is time to use that scapegoat again and get it away from us never to return. David continues in this passage, and he says, When I kept silent, (laughs) and he goes on to talk about what happened when he kept silent. I'm going to use this term in a general sense. I do want you to understand that I, I recognize It's not always a spiritual issue, but basically David could have said, when I kept silent, depression set in. Say, well, how do we see depression as the issue here? Consider Psalm chapter 38. If you still got your Bibles open, you can turn and look at it real quick. Verses 1 through 8, it's still a Psalm of David. David is writing this and he's still referencing the same thing. Psalm 38 verses 1 through 8 says this, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down upon me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. Listen to this. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. The weight of sin can completely destroy the human body, our emotions, our minds. Far too often what we've done is we have sinned and we have tried to kind of keep it undercover. We didn't want everybody to know about it. And what has happened is although everybody else looks on the outside and everything looks good on the inside, we are riddled with shame and guilt. And it begins to affect the way we look at everything in our lives. As David declares here, even his body begins to pay the price for the guilt that has been weighing him down. That's why I said at the beginning when I was talking about Nathan coming, he didn't just all of a sudden feel guilt because he got caught. Here he is. This man has been carrying the weight of his guilt for a long time. And the impact of it was great. I think about this when I look at Spouses who have been unfaithful to their husband, to their wife. And often they carry around this baggage of guilt. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I let this happen. 
And then when the spouse finds out, they're angry, but you've already been carrying this guilt. You almost feel like a weight has been lifted that it happened because now he or she knows what took place. I think of so many of us who have made foolish choices in the business world or maybe even with our kids and we carry around this guilt and our shame. But the reality is the best thing for us to do is to no longer sit in silence, but rather to release it to God. See, I was talking a moment ago about forgiveness. And one of the greatest things we can do in forgiveness, I realize it's hard to admit when we've messed up. But one of the most valuable things in receiving forgiveness, truly living at peace with others, is being men and women of integrity. Which means that at times we have to confess Yeah, I've messed up. Because the longer we hold it in, the more it's going to eat away at us and it's going to make it more difficult upon us. Remember the song years ago, gloom, despair, agony, oh me, deep, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. You guys remember that? I don't even know who did that song. In fact, it's the only line that I know from the song. But I think that far too many people in the church even though we can put that smile on on Sunday morning, we are walking around in agony because of the sin that we know we did. And we haven't been forgiven either by God, by ourselves, or by others. Certainly, depression is a very real thing, and there can be other causes. But clearly, as we see in this passage, there is a weight of sin. And it carries around a great weight. Eventually, David realizes his need to confess. And he says, then I acknowledged, then I admitted this is what I did. Here's the beauty in confession. First of all, understand you didn't surprise God. He knew you did it long before you confessed to him. Have you ever had somebody who they did something wrong to you and you knew that they did, yet they refused to confess to what they did? And the whole time, you know all about it. And it's just, it's almost like you're sitting back there wondering, how long are you going to wait until you admit what took place? And I kind of picture God doing that with us sometimes. Because he knows all of our sins. He knows every choice that we've ever made. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That weight that we've been holding on to when we sat in silence because we knew what we did and we regretted it so much and we were ashamed of it. God's sitting back and he's saying, why don't you come to me and confess that sin so that you can take that burden off of you? See, it's not God's will that we be weighted down by our past, but rather God desires that we walk and the joy and the grace that he has offered to us. But in order for that to happen, we have to be willing to come before him and simply say, God, I have messed up. I have allowed sin in my life, and I need your forgiveness. God offers that to us simply by his grace. That wasn't me. So David makes two final statements. Actually, one statement covers two points. 
He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you. It's interesting here. He doesn't say, let all of the ungodly come and pray to you so that they might find forgiveness. He says, let everyone who is godly pray to you. I want to challenge you with this idea here this morning. God is calling not only for the world outside of this building to repent, but God desires that the church come before him and be sincere and honest where we have allowed sin to exist. It is time to remove it. It has no place among the body of Christ. So as David says, let everyone who is godly pray to you. That statement goes on, though, and he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. There is coming a day that Christ will come back. There is coming a day where we will no longer have this world the way it is right now. When that day of judgment comes, we we need to make sure we're ready. Because there will come a day where those who are not ready will not be able to find Jesus Christ. Again, no one knows the day nor the hour. I just, I've just been teaching a class at Southern Wesleyan University, and we've been talking about this particular issue. No one knows when that day will come. Maybe the Lord will come back this week. If so, that's fantastic. I'm so excited. It's going to be an incredible opportunity. We get to sit in the presence of the Lord for the rest of eternity. What an incredible... Plus, I get to cheat death. I don't have to die because the Lord's going to come back before I die then. But here's another possibility. Maybe the Lord comes back a thousand years from now. No one knows when that day will come. But as David prayed, we need to seek the Lord now while he may be found. You see, the Lord desires a personal relationship with every single one of us. Seek the Lord now while he may be found. And as you do, the Lord will work in you to give you a complete life here. You can actually put aside the weight of sin, the guilt and the shame that has been present. And you can live with the victory and the freedom that he offers to us. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we confess to you now that we have allowed sin to exist in our lives. Right now, as every head is bowed and eye is closed, Lord, we come before you as individuals and as a congregation. You know the things that we have done. Some of us have lied. Some of us have gossiped. Some of us have committed adultery. Some of us have stolen. Some of us have lived in hatred. Some of us have disobeyed you in ways that we would not even mention in a public setting. But Lord, I ask right now that whichever sins we have committed, Lord, I ask that you would forgive us of those sins. Lord, help us to come before you 
with truly repentant hearts that not only admit that the sin has taken place, but rather we also come before you and we ask that you would forgive us and we choose never to walk that same path that we walked before. Lord, I pray for each individual who is here this morning that truly we would be able to put aside the weight of sin, the guilt and the shame that has weighed us down. And I pray that you would enable us to walk in freedom and victory, to take that huge weight off of our backs so that we can truly enjoy the life that you have given us. Lord, more than anything, I pray that you would prepare us for eternity. Well, we don't know when you're going to come, but we do know that you will come. And we ask right now that you would help us to be ready so that when that day comes, we will not look upon it with fear, but rather with anticipation over the joy of being with you for all eternity. Help us to seek you now while you may be found. Where the church body has allowed sin to exist, allow us right now to symbolically place it on that scapegoat never to be found in this church again. Allow us to honor you with our attitudes, with our mouths, with our actions. And we will give you praise, honor, and glory for what you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.